proceedings again tonight for all of you and the precious name of Jesus. My Savior, it was a beautiful day in Virginia here. It's a very pleasant day because we had a good day. For a message tonight, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel in chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I want to use about six verses here for our text, and then, of course, broadening out on that a bit. I'm not sure what might be a good title for the message tonight. Maybe we could just simply entitle it, Following Jesus, or maybe we could entitle it, Putting Our Hand to the Plow. And you, I told you last night that I'm a farmer. And in my preaching, some of that seeps out, I think, that uh, I have a love for agriculture and for farming. And maybe some of the thoughts and illustrations tonight that I'll share have to do with, with agriculture. But Jesus here, in our text, he uses that statement. No man, in verse 62, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Following... Jesus. I think I'll read from verse 57 through 62. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, or I may say woman, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know if Jesus, our Lord, knew much about plowing or not. I'm sure that as he walked the, in companion with men here on earth, he saw men plowing. And so he understood the importance of once a man puts his hand to the plow, that it's kept there. I'd like to just tonight look at these three men that would be and desire to be followers of Jesus and just see what we can deduct or draw from their experience and what Jesus had to tell them as it relates to following Jesus. Now, I believe for us to understand and to to begin to to see what Jesus was feeling as he talked to these men and uh, communed with them, it's important that we understand the context in which Jesus says these, gives these words because his words are very short, brief, and to the point to these men. What was Jesus facing? What was he experiencing? Well, if we turn back in our Bibles, just a, just a few pages, or just a page or so, in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 9, Jesus said, And he straightly charged them and commanded the, them to tell no man that that thing, saying, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Now if we go to verse 43 and 44 of the same chapter, here he says, in verse 43, And they were, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God, but while they wondered, everyone at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these things sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Then we come to verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should receive up, be, received, be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, our Lord, was on a mission. His face was steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem. And in this mission, he wanted nothing to deter. He wanted nothing to detract him. He was on a mission. So understanding that, just after this, someone says in verse 57, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Lord, I want to follow you. Now, this is voluntary. This man volunteers to follow Jesus. As I was preparing and thinking about this, isn't that interesting to think about, to think about the, the, the personality or the character traits of this man? Do you suppose this man was a bit visionary? Lord, I want to follow you. Visionary. You, you, you have those kind of people, I, I dare say, among your, 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 your brothers and sisters here. I mean, in this congregation, there are visionaries. I, I know we have them in our church. We need those people. They are the kind of people that see, that, 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 that see something and that they, they want to do that. They have an ambition and a goal to do that and accomplish that. But maybe sometimes they're not as practical as they are visionary. And so, you know how it is. I could, I could refer to a number of, of missions that, uh, that we support, and they were started with visionaries. Good. But someone had to come along that was a bit more practical and hands-on to make it work and to keep it going. So this man says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you. I'll be your disciple. And I want to say on the onset here that I know tonight that a discipleship gospel is not a popular gospel. A following Jesus gospel is not popular. But I dare say that we find it in Scripture. Following Jesus. Following Jesus. If I'm not mistaken, about 77 times in the New Testament, there's reference made to following Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus. So, what does Jesus say to this man? He says, in verse 58, And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere 
foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Point number one tonight is that if you and I are going to follow Jesus, it's going to call for a level of commitment. Commitment. Sometimes we use the phrase that when someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, they made a commitment to the Lord Jesus, and rightfully so. We make commitments to the Lord Jesus, and this is what Jesus was asking of this man, to make a commitment. If you would come visit us in our home, our home, our house sets about a quarter mile off of the road, and just before you come to our house, out there under a few trees, you will find a little red flower. A little 316 flower. Now, I bought that plow, purchased that plow several years ago when my father who lived in western Oklahoma, Thomas, Oklahoma at the time, and moved over to our area and community there. But he, he, he sold his, most of his farm equipment at that auction. I purchased that plow not because I wanted to take it back to Arkansas and to plow with it, but I, I purchased it simply for some sentimental reasons. That little plow has a lot of memories for me. And let me just share and illustrate tonight. And by the way, I'd like to say that before I go any further, as it relates to stories, and I like to interject some stories in my preaching, but, but let's always remember that the story is only the nail upon which we hang a spiritual truth. It's to help us to, to clarify a truth, a, a scriptural spiritual truth. So this little plow... I remember as about a 12-year-old boy in western Oklahoma, I had driven tractor quite a bit before this, but I had never plowed or mowboard plowed. And so I had this ambition as a young lad that I wanted to plow. And my dad was, had said that we would start plowing this 80-acre field, and I had told him, I said, Dad, I'd like to plow. I've never plowed before. Could I plow? And he said, certainly. I said, I'll get you started, and you can plow this 80-acre field. Now, this field, 80 acres, was a half a mile long. It was a quarter mile wide, and, and so um, all the way around the field was a mile and a half. And I was plowing with a little putt-putt John Deere going, moving along about three miles an hour. So it took me 30 minutes to make that first round. My dad went with me those first two rounds. Those first two rounds we plowed, it took us an hour to make those two rounds. Then he said, here it is, son, you plow. So I plowed the rest of that day till sundown. Sun rose the next morning after chores, I went back to plow. I plowed all day again. Third day come along again, I started after chores and I plowed again till sundown. And by the end of the third day, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I, I don't want to plow anymore. I, I'm tired of plowing. And I had a good dad. He said, no, son. He said, you want to plow. You'll plow till you're done. I plowed the fourth day again till sundown. Finally, on the fifth day, 
I made the last round around that field. Now, the point is simply this. Now, when I told my dad that I would put my hand to the plow and I would plow, it called for a level of commitment that I was not aware of as a young boy. And I dare say, friends, I just want to be honest with you, especially children. If there's someone here that is not currently following the Lord Jesus, and for those of us who have, are following the Lord Jesus, I just want to remind us again that it calls for a level of commitment that many times goes far beyond what we know that we'll experience at the time we make that commitment. Jesus said to this man, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Now what is that to these creatures? That's none other than home. A fox den is home to a fox. A bird's nest up there in that tree is home to a bird. That is the safest place. That is the most secure place. That is the most comfortable place that these creatures have. And Jesus reminds this visionary, now listen, if you want to follow me, it'll call for a level of commitment that's going to go beyond comfort, beyond what is familiar to you. When the storm rages, where does the bird go? To the nest. He's safe. Where does the fox run to when he's hunted? The den. Security. Safety. And Jesus goes even a bit deeper and he says, I don't have a place whereupon I may lay my head. Now, my pillow in my bedroom is the most private, the most personal place in my house. I invite anybody to my living room, to our table in the kitchen, but, but I'm not as quick to invite someone to my bedroom and to my pillow. calls to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, calls for commitment. And dare I say tonight that that commitment may take us places we've never, ever dreamed it would take us. I so distinctly remember as a young boy getting out of bed one night it was a cold night. We'd been through a series of meetings where the Lord was speaking to me. And I knelt beside my bed. And I committed my life to the Lord Jesus. I said, Lord, I want to follow you. That was many, many years ago. Well, exactly about 50 years ago, nearly so. I had no idea. I've been through valleys. I've been through places that have been very, very uncomfortable. Uh, places that have not been familiar, where familiarity was jerked away from me. 
visions and goals and dreams that I had had for my life were taken away. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Just follow portion with me. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But I have nowhere to lay my head. Just commit me. Call for commitment. And Jesus must have been thinking. What he told, uh, what he talked about to his, as it relates to his disciples here in chapter 9. If we just turn back to, uh, a page again to verse 23 and 24, it says, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall, shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. You want to follow me? You'll have to take up the cross. The cross. Really? The cross. The cross of self-denial. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, where he also talks about the cross, there he says that unless we take up the cross, we cannot be a disciple. We cannot be a follower of Jesus. Now, the word cannot there does not simply mean that we are not allowed to be a disciple, but it, it means that there is no ability to be a disciple. It is not possible to be a follower of Jesus outside a cross of self-denial in our lives. Commitment. And dare I say that we do everything we can to push out, push the cross out of our lives. You remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the disciples for what the general public was saying about him and who he was. And Peter, quick to respond, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to him was something like this, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So what, Peter, what Jesus was really telling Peter was, what you've just said, Peter, is truth, but it's divine revelation. It's from God the Father in heaven. He's revealed it to you. So if tonight we can honestly say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's divine revelation and we must cherish it. But immediately after that, Jesus began to tell the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, as he says here in Luke 9, and there he says that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to basically, in, in my own words, they're going to kill me. And Peter responds again very, very quickly. He says, oh no, this won't happen. Be it far from you, Lord. What did Jesus tell Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense to me. For thou savest not the things, the things that be of men, be of, be of God, but of men. So in other words, Jesus was telling Peter to push the cross out of our life comes from Satan himself, and it is of men. It is of this flesh. We push it out of our life. 
pain, suffering, we, we push it away. But I dare say tonight that if we're going to follow Jesus as disciples of Jesus, we will take the cross. The cross. I won't take the time to go into a lot of detail what the cross might do to each one of us. But I believe in many ways, sometimes we have, we have detoured from what the cross really is to us. We make it some big experience that's out there. But when Jesus talked about taking up the cross daily, if you study that word daily, it means every 24 hours. Did you see a cross in your life in the last 24 hours? I dare say. The choices that we make in life on a daily basis, we must apply the cross. What does this do to the level of commitment, of my commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Will it, will it help me? Will it advance me in serving the Lord Jesus in His kingdom? Or does it hinder me? Cross. Take it up daily. So number one, Point number one, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, it'll call for a level of commitment. Now, number two, let's look again at these disciples, would-be disciples. Verse 59, and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this man did not volunteer. He was asked by Jesus our Lord to follow him. And what does he say? Well, he says, yes, I would follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. Now, was this man caring for his elderly father? Or had his father just passed away? We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us. And I would like to say clearly before I go any further that I do not believe that Jesus was teaching in any way that we disregard these earthly family relationships. Not at all. Because I could go to other scriptures and I could tell you and show you that is in this context, in this index, that, that uh, we know we have, uh, that Jesus said that we love him. We cannot love Jesus more than we love others who we relate to. In other words, there's a connection there. So Jesus was not saying disregard your father, don't worry about burying him, but he is making a clear point. Let the dead bury their dead and go down and preach the kingdom of God. So point number two is simply this. When I say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you, it's going to call for a level of labor and work. I have a work for you, he says to this man. I want you to go and to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus' response was very, again, very cut and dry, much to the point. Go down and preach the kingdom of God. Again, let me illustrate with an agriculture illustration again as it relates to plowing. 
I remember back in the early, late 90s, the late 80s, early 90s, at least in the area where we lived at that time, the push was on to go no-till. Leave your plows in the shed and just no-till. And at that point, I wasn't so convinced. It's taken some years. I do some of that. We do. My sons have, have helped me kind of, kind of uh, or convinced me that it does work. We can appreciate it. But why leave the shed in the plow? The primary reason was less labor. That's basically one of the reasons we do not till. So there's less labor. We live in a society, in a world, in a culture that wants to achieve a goal, a mission with the least amount of labor and the least amount of time. And I dare say tonight, that when we enter the kingdom of God and we say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, we must lay that aside. Because kingdom work is just that, work. whether it's on an individual basis or as a church collectively. We say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. That means we put our hand to the plow and it's going to call for an intense amount of labor. Any one of us who has said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you any amount of time. We know it's going to call for labor. There's going to be an amount of labor, again, that we were not aware of when we said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Because the kingdom of darkness and evil militates against the kingdom of God. And so there's labor because of that. The pressures of evil and darkness are against us, and there's labor pushing against us by the grace and the power of God. The word labor and work were very common in the Apostle Paul's vocabulary. A very familiar one, one that most of us probably know by memory, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. The Apostle Paul says something like this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There you have both work and labor. And he's asking us to continue in this work and labor, always abounding, being steadfast and unmovable. Does it take an amount of labor and, 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 and work to remain steadfast and unmovable in this, in this culture and world that we live in? It does. Labor. Paul also says that he wrought with labor and travailed night and day. Another place he says that I have bestowed upon you labor. Another place he says we are labors together with God. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. 
Jesus says, I want you to remember as you make a commitment to follow me, it will call for labor. Labor. May we never succumb to these teachings around us so there's a gospel of ease and pleasure. No. Gospel called for labor and work. Now the last one, verse 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what's point number three? Point number three is simply this. When we say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, it is important that we stay focused. That we stay focused. So there's commitment, there's labor, and thirdly, we must stay focused. Now, Jesus, again, I don't think was telling this man, disregard bidding farewell to your family. No, there's nothing wrong. When we leave and we bid farewell to our sons and daughter-in-laws and our little grandson, we hugged him and told him goodbye when we left for this trip several weeks ago. I trust there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a point here again. Jesus is making a point. You put your hand to the plow, you must keep it there. Keep it there. Now again, I would, uh, I, uh, Jesus had reference to a hand plow. And there's a little hand plow at Sunny Ruth's yard as well. I noticed that today. Go past it. A little hand plow. Never plowed with a hand plow. Never had that experience. But let me again illustrate with a plow. As it relates to staying focused. My daddy was not a carpenter. He was not a school teacher. He did not have a profession in a medical field like a number of you do here, and I bless you in that. But my daddy was a farmer. And he was just, not just a farmer because his dad was a farmer, and his grandfather was a farmer, and his great-grandfather was a farmer. My dad was a farmer because he loved to be a farmer. It was his heart. He loved it. One of the things that my dad was very good at was plowing. He plowed with excellence. That plow had to be set at the right depth. It had to be set to plow level. I distinctly remember as a young lad when I started plowing, and, and by the way, he required excellence of his sons as well. And I would get off of that track and plow, and I would simply go right down on the ground, and I would just see that if that is perfectly level. Because my dad required excellence. One of the things that the farmers would do, at least in, 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 in western Oklahoma where we live, is that they would start plowing. They would simply plow around the field, just around the field. Year after year, they plow around the field. Well, you can only imagine what happens when you plow around the field year after year. There's a fence out here that's about five foot tall, but in about 15 years, it's only about four foot tall. 
because you've plowed out against that fence year after year, and in the center of the field, you have a, a pond or a dead or a dead furrow that has developed into being a pond. And my daddy said, no, we don't plow like that. One year you plow up to the fence, the next year you pull away from the fence. And he taught us very early on how you do that. He said, what you do, son, is you measure. You go to the far end of the field, you step off from the fence a certain distance in from the fence, and there, of course, the fields were flatter. Maybe we wouldn't be able to do it here in Virginia, at least not this part of the country, like we did out there. But you could see a half a mile to the other end of the field, and you hang a white flag on the fence. Then you come back to the front end of the field, and you measure out the same distance from the fence. You drop the plow on the ground, and son, I want to tell you, keep your eye on that flag, and don't turn around and look back, because if you do, you're going to put a kink in that furrow. And I tell you, he was right, because I tried it, and that's where it was. And then when you get out to the end of the fence, there you have this curve in this furrow, and you don't come out to the fence exactly even. The point is, when you and I say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on our Lord. Because I will tell you that if we begin to spend a lot of time looking backward, looking behind us, there are things behind us that, that, that used to be kind of glamorous, that we may long for. Or there may be things behind us that will discourage us and will cause us to, to even be, lead to depression and discouragement that we'll just give up. No, we keep our eyes on Jesus, on the goal. And we don't look back. Why? Why do you suppose that in, in Luke 17, where Jesus was talking about his soon return and all that would take place at, before he returns, wars, rumors of wars and wars and earthquakes and all these kinds of, of disasters that would take place, sandwiched right into the middle of that text, you find a very short verse, just three words. And the words are, remember Lot's wife. Now, what are we to remember about Lot's wife? She turned around, and she looked back proudly. Now, now, let's just think a little bit about Lot's wife. Certainly, she would have wanted to look back to Sodom. She may very well have dear grandchildren back there. She had sons-in-law back there. There were things that were very comfortable back there. Fleeing to the mountain was ripping all comfort away from her. And familiarity. No. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Keep your eye on the goal. Don't look back. Don't look I don't think you had jackrabbits here, did you? Rushmore, Oklahoma has jackrabbits. 
Now jackrabbits can run fast. Jackrabbits have long ears and long legs. And they can most generally just go out and run the fastest. But one of the weaknesses of a jackrabbit is that he flops those ears back across his head, his body, so, he, so there's no uh, wind resistance, so he can run faster. But, but one of the things he'll do, he'll, he'll, every once in a while he'll look back to see what's behind him. His predator is chasing him, and so he sees, tries to discover how close he might be. One of my friends, one day, was coming home from work. And there was a jackrabbit on the driveway. And he knew the nature of a jackrabbit. And so he began to pursue this jackrabbit. He had a, a, his driveway was good, uh, good length of, of, of driveway there, so, so he knew that he had some time. So he began to just creep up closer and closer onto this jackrabbit on, with his truck. And this jackrabbit was just running faster and faster and faster. And on the one side of the drive was, was a fence. And in his weakness, he looked back and snapped right into a fence post, and that was his end. Killed him right there. He looked back. Brothers and sisters, we must keep our eyes on the goal. We must stay focused. And Jesus further says here in our text that if we don't keep our eye on the goal, we're not fit for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? I understand the word fit here simply means we're not able to be used. And there is no place for us in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I'd just like to explore that idea a bit. The kingdom of God. I believe tonight that the kingdom of God is twofold in nature. Present kingdom and future kingdom. Present Kingdom, Colossians 4 and verse 11 talks about, says something like this, My fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. Currently is what Paul was talking about. And then, then future kingdom, Matthew 25, verse 34, talks about where it says, Come ye blessed of my Father, and hold the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, so current and, and, and future kingdom. Let's just think about this kingdom a bit tonight. So, so we want to have a place in this kingdom. We want to be followers in this kingdom. What and where is this kingdom? Well, I could turn to Luke 17. Maybe I shouldn't take the time. But I'll just, just briefly turn to that and refer to a few verses. Uh, but here Jesus says something like this in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 17. He says, and when he was demanded the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus simply teaches the, about the kingdom of God, and first of all, he begins by saying what it is not, what it is not. It doesn't come with observation, with a lot of pomp, show, or power. 
like we would think of earthly kingdoms, that often there's a waving of flags and marches and all that goes with an entrance, the entrance of a new kingdom. Not so in this kingdom. Followers of Jesus enter this kingdom one soul at a time. One soul at a time. We enter this kingdom. The scripture talks about this kingdom a little bit like a mustard seed, a little bit like leaven, and there's various other ways that the scripture talks about this kingdom. Further, Jesus says here in, in Luke 17 that this kingdom is not territorial, or it doesn't have a boundary where you can say, lo, here it is, or lo, there it is. Not territorial. One of the beautiful things about the kingdom of God, it is scattered throughout the entire world. What a blessing. The entire world. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within us. Is within us. You see, it is more than Emmanuel, which, meant, which means God with us. But the kingdom of God is God within us. In the divine presence and spirit of God. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, unless I, I spiritualize it too much tonight, I don't want to say that, but I want to just remind us that every kingdom has a king, has citizens and subjects, as it were, and every citizen and every kingdom has its own governing laws by which it is governed. And I don't have time to go into that, but all we have to do is go to Matthew ch uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. There you have it. The, the, the laws by which this kingdom is to be governed. Yes. Someone has said, this kingdom does not strike man's fancy, but it's spirit. It's spirit. How does one enter this kingdom? I just want to be plain and, and, and elementary tonight. How does one enter this kingdom? Some become citizens of a country by birth. Most of us, I assume, are Americans by birth. Well, you can become a citizen of a country either through investment. I know in Ireland you could, you could do that. Or through association, after so many years, associating in the country, with the country, with the people, you can become a member. But entering the kingdom of God is only through a spiritual birth. The only way one can ever enter that kingdom. And, and let's remember, by association, one can be a part of or, or associate with God's people, maybe in a church for years and years, but that does not necessarily mean that one is a, has, a, has had a spiritual birth, that he's entered the kingdom. We enter the kingdom only through a spiritual birth. John chapter 3, you know this story. Jesus very clearly told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Followers of Jesus are, are, are must be born again. 
That is the only way we, we enter this kingdom. And dare I say tonight, just as it takes two parents for a physical birth, so it takes two parents for this spiritual birth. Jesus says to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God, cannot be a follower of Jesus, except he be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, water in, in, in the Scripture is often typified as the Word, as the Word. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Over here you have the word of God. This is a seed, Peter says, by which a man is born again. And over here you have the spirit of God. This is the water, the word. Here is the spirit, Jesus says. And as this word, the word of God, begins to, we study the word, we, we read the word, we hear the word of God, and, and then the spirit takes that word and brings conviction to the man's heart, his conscience, and the word and the spirit come together. There's conception, and there's a spiritual birth. One enters into the kingdom of God through a spiritual birth. By the word, by water, and by the spirit, we enter into this kingdom. We become followers of Jesus. And it calls, I dare say, I remind you again tonight, it calls for commitment, for labor, and for staying focused for the goal. We belong into this kingdom. That's a strange question, isn't it? Who belongs into this kingdom? Matthew 22. The Pharisees send uh, and, and their send their disciples with the Herodians to, to trip up Jesus in his words. And they were to ask Jesus if it was right for 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 them to pay tribute. Caesar. And what we know what Jesus did there. He saw the hearts of these Herodians, and he simply said something like this. He said, bring me a coin. And he says, now whose image and superscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. What was Jesus' response? He says something like this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I think we take that statement from Jesus and we, we, we emphasize the first part of that statement. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and we say, be a good Mennonite, pay your taxes. But I dare say tonight, the weightier matter of Jesus' statement is the latter part of that statement. For Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. If tonight we can use the same illustration that Jesus used to silence the Herodians with that last statement, I would ask us tonight, where 
is the image of God tonight. Because that's very clear. Genesis chapter 1, and verse 26 and 27, there it says, God said, let us make man in our own image. So in the image of God created he them, him, male and female created he them. The image of God is stamped on every eternal soul in this world. On you and mine. It belongs to God Almighty. Who belongs to the descendants? choose to be there? No. Not necessarily. We must choose to follow Jesus. We must. As it says in our text, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We must make a commitment personally to follow Jesus. We must labor in His kingdom, and we must stay focused in order to be fit and to be useful in His kingdom. It is not 